Part of a 600-year Polish vodka-making tradition, Belvedere Vodka is all-natural and made with 100% non-GMO Polska rye and pristine water. Belvedere has championed Polska rye vodka and superior natural ingredients since its inception and continues their mission with its new Belvedere Single Estate Rye Series. These award-winning vodkas, Smogori Forest and Lake Bartejek, are two distinct tasting vodkas born from unique terroir and expert craftsmanship. Speaking of craftsmanship, I'm pretty sure today's guest, Andre Iguodala, knows something about craftsmanship, having watched Steph Curry and Clay Thompson drain threes the last few years. Taste the difference and enjoy Belvedere's new single estate rye vodkas on the rocks or in a delicious cocktail today. Belvedere is a quality choice. Drinking responsibly is too. Welcome to this week's episode of the JJ Reddick Podcast. Uh, I want to jump right into my conversation with today's guest. It is Andre Iguodala. Andre is a three-time NBA champion. He is a former All-Star. He is an Olympic gold medalist. He is, quite simply, one of the best players of my generation, someone that uh, I graduated from the same high school class as him in 2002. And as we discuss, we are, I think, one of or two of the three players left standing in our high school draft class. Um, Andre has a book that comes out on June 25th, the day that we are recording this podcast. It is called The Sixth Man. It is a memoir, and uh, it is quite fantastic. And now to my conversation with Andre Iguodala. Andre, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, you are a guest that I've uh, wanted to have on here for a long time, and this just happens to coincide with the release of your book, uh, a memoir called The Sixth Man, that comes out today. So first of all, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Very good time, man. I've been, I've been trying to get here as well, so I'll take the blame, though. <laughs> you were about 15 minutes late, so because I didn't get an advanced copy, <laughs> I was able to scroll through uh, the intro, and on page six, I saw my name. You're you're talking about the summer of 2001. We we played against each other mm-hmm. in the uh, in the AU national championship game. Um, I appreciate you not mentioning that I was <laughs> I think two for 16 that game, <laughs> and uh, and you guys killed us. I was actually just thinking about it though. Looking back at our high school class, mm-hmm. I think it's me, you, and Raymond. Oh, Felton Raymond, yes, yes, as the last guy standing. Yes, Raymond was on the Adidas circuit, so. Uh, I didn't see him. And then I was only there for one year on the circuit in general. So that's pretty crazy. I was thinking like last week, like who's going to be the last one standing? I think it's going to be you though. You think it's going to be me? Yeah, I think it's going to be you. That'd be wild. <laughs> well, you've talked you've talked a little bit about retirement, right? You have one, one year left on your deal. I got like, one year left on my deal. But when I'm saying like I'm close to retirement, I'm meaning like I'm 15 years in. It means it's almost over in terms of I'm closer to the end than to the beginning. And they say, oh, he's retiring next year. So the, the media doesn't do a good job of understanding people they interview every day. Right. They need to do better. So I don't mean Once next year. Once you get year. past like year 11, 10 or 11, mm-hmm. like there's just no way you're going to get to 22, right? right? So you're like, I'm close to retirement. Exactly. It doesn't really mean anything. Exactly. Um, before we get to a little bit about your book, I, I wanted to ask you about some comments you made, I think it was yesterday mm-hmm. on CNBC mm-hmm. about the Knicks. 
right. um, saying that um, they're not getting anybody. Uh, that's a conversation that I've had with, I live in New York, so uh -huh. that's a conversation I've had with Knicks fans. I probably had like 15 of those over the last month, ah. and everybody's super fucking disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> but the funny thing is like, I've been on like this little media blitz, and it's like, I keep getting that question. Well, I'll be getting the question all year, right? So at some point, I'm like, yo, like I don't know who's going to the Knicks. Nobody's going to the Knicks then. I don't know. Like It was one of those comments like, listen, man, I don't. Y'all not gonna get anybody here, cause y'all. I mean, it's like you're getting annoying. I'm getting annoyed with the questions, but I'm more annoyed because it's been like a nine month crazy circus of is Katie going to the Knicks? I don't know. I hope not. <laughs> <laughs> so I don't know. But you have no inside information saying that he's he's not going to the Knicks. Oh no, I don't know. If, I don't know if he's not going. Okay. Yeah, I have no idea. Okay. It, I just got tired of hearing it yesterday. I was on CNBC and I'm like, why are you asking me about the Knicks? And I had such a great conversation there because I like to talk about, I like to get away from basketball. Sure. So we had really good conversations about, you know, this, the market, tech stocks that I've invested in, uh, MBPA, the book, and then it's like the Knicks. I'm like, the Knicks? I don't care about the Knicks. So I do wonder though, like for a Knicks fan that has endured so much and they've sold the entire fan base on the summer of 2019. Mm. Like, and I have no intel on this either, but like what happens if it gets to, you know, July 4th and all the big names are off the right. board and they're starting to give out one-year deals to like third and fourth tier? Like what happens? Are there no fireworks in New York? That's a really Does good Does the question. city cancel the fireworks? Like, it, it, like people are going to be yeah. distraught. Especially with all the buildup. It was a great buildup. <laughs> It was a great story. Out. It I was think, a great story. I personally story. think they're going to strike out, but they have a shot. They're going to obviously have a shot at somebody. But, I mean, they thought they had a shot at LeBron. That was crazy. That year, he went to Miami. It's not as crazy as this because there's so many. You got Kyrie. Yeah, but they still got Amari. Oh, they did. Amari was playing amazing, Yeah, too. and they, st they still got Amari, and he was, yeah, they did. for a while, an MVP candidate, and yeah. they ended up winning 54, you know, one year with, with Carmelo on the team. So it wasn't like that didn't turn out okay. Um, but, man. It's just, it's interesting if you like think about it. Like, it's almost like the Clippers funk they had before they got CP and Blake. It was like they were stuck. Yeah, like they never, they were they they weren't good ever and historically from like the beginning. And then obviously CP Blake, then you were part of that. It finally had some mojo. Yeah. It seemed like they were kind of. But once I got rid of uh, Sterling. Is when I got some good, uh, <laughs> yeah, I got some good uh, karma. I'm not saying that there's bad karma with the Knicks. I'm just talking about another organization. Well, anybody that's listening can connect dots. I'm not going to make any reference to anything. But anyway, uh, your book. <laughs> um, so just take me through sort of the process of mm -hmm. when you, you know, were approached about this or did you go to someone and say, hey, I, I, I want to write a book? Like what was essentially the motivation in the beginning stages of this? So that, that part was interesting. Um, so my business partner, Rudy Klein Thomas, uh, he's been like a very instrumental part through the, like the last five years in terms of things I do off the court. So he'll come up with some idea and she'd be like, ah, it seems like it's off the wall. But then it's like, all right, let me think about it. Okay, it makes some type of sense. So he came up with the idea, let's do a book. I think you're ready. And I was like, you know, just I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm not retiring. Like, so why now? So just um, the first thing was I got sent like eight books 
eight memoirs slash biographies uh, from uh, the famous chef uh, Marcus Samuelson. Is that yeah. his name? Marcus Samuelson. That was really good. He owns a Red Rooster. And then I got uh, the pitcher, R- Riviera? Rivera, Rivera. Mariano Rivera. Rivera, yeah. yeah. That was really good. So I got like eight uh, biographies, and I read like three or four of them. And I was like, yo, like it kind of gave me some inspiration to like kind of tell my story. Like that was a really good part for me. And then the next process was finding a writer. So um, I'm reading a lot of articles, and then we just trying to find a voice of a person who I can co-write it with. And we came up on the uh, Carville Wallace, who wrote a he wrote an article about a rapper. I forgot the rapper's name. He got killed in Atlanta, and his it's like it's this crazy story he told, but it wasn't from like um he didn't have like a a specific Voice. Like it wasn't a hip hop voice, but it wasn't like a dry uh, political voice. It was kind of a good hybrid, and that resonated with me because of how kind of how I grew up. In terms of like, I grew up like I looked out my back window, and uh, the projects were right there. Like my trash, or I took the trash out at my grandmother's house. The projects met that alley in the back, so that's who I was on the bus stop with. That's who I went to school with. But when I got in the classroom, I was in class with all white kids, and that was my whole life. So I had to jump back and forth between the two worlds. And when he wrote the article, it seemed like he had a view from both sides and he was telling a story to like white people. And I was like, whoa, like that's how we found a writer. And then once I found him, it was a few initial meetings and then we set the schedule. Like we gonna meet at 7 p.m. most of the time at this hotel and then we'll see where we get after. Uh, we see if we can write whatever you need to send to a publisher to see if there's a go ahead to continue. And then from there we kept it going. So. Um, it was very therapeutic. Like once you start writing a book, you start remembering like crazy things. Like remembering a game we had, or remembering like an AU coach, or remembering a teacher. Like I remember a teacher telling me I was gonna be a failure in uh, eighth grade. Like telling a 12, 13 year old that he's not gonna make it. Like this was kind of crazy. And then you start remembering like motivation, or you start remembering people who helped you out along the way. So it was really good. It was therapeutic. It's almost like events, people in your life that you didn't even realize had such an impact on you, both good and bad. Both good and bad. Uh, they all of a sudden just start coming back up. So I, this is something that I, I potentially would like to do. Mm-hmm. And I, I got approached about it last fall. But like the big thing for me, I think, was like I, I didn't necessarily want to do it as an active player. Mm-hmm. And, you know, some of that is like timing and having two young kids and um, – commuting back and forth between Philly and, and Brooklyn. Like right. it just didn't seem like like the right time. And so, you know, I'm, I'm curious as just to how challenging it was given your schedule and not just basketball, but all the other stuff you have going on um, with, with your business partner, Rudy. The hardest part was probably with the missus. <laughs> and she's like a stickler for time. Like, but the good thing though, my life. the good part was yeah. that my son's older so I have a boy and two girls. My son's the oldest. He's 12. He's actually at Duke camp. He just left today. He's nice. at Duke camp. So um, the timing was good for me to do it now while I'm still playing because our kids grow up differently than we did, like, especially black kids. Like, they are, their world is so different from ours. Like, I try to tell my son about, like, yo, man, you got to grind. You got to be hungry. Like, you got to go kill. And he's looking at me like, why? <laughs> right? Like, yeah. but then at the same time, watching him play, I'm like, yo, he's a smart player. Like, he knows how to backdoor cut. You know what I'm saying? Like, he can finish with his left-hand layup. Like, he passes first. And I'm like, stop passing. But he's playing the right way. And I'm like, I, I got to remind myself that his environment is different than mine. But at the same time, when I'm writing this book, 
he was like the first person to read it. And like he, some of the things I've been telling him about being black, like he doesn't quite understand, but now he gets, he's like, oh, I get it. Like he's starting to get it. So I'm like, cool. Like it was a way for me to have a conversation with him. Like I opened a book up and said, young fella, stay black. Like that's how I grew up. Like every time I left the house, my mom would be like, stay black. And I, and people would be like, I throw out like racial things like all the time. Like, and I'm not that dead serious. Like they get the humor in it, but they're also like, oh, I'm making it aware. But that's how I grew up. So I always try to give that message to him. My wife is like, stop forcing it on him. I'm like, I'm not forcing it on him. That's just natural to me. He just grows up in a different environment. So the good side was that I was able to talk to him. But the bad side was that, you know, my wife was like, you know, your schedule is getting a little too busy. So I was, I was, I was, it was good to get through that because, you know, the, the wives were in the house and anything that gets out of off schedule, they on your ass. So I'm assuming then this, this, this theme of sort of uh, living in, in two different worlds mm-hmm. um, is, is prevalent throughout the book. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm sure for your son to read that must have been amazing. And I'm, I'm wondering what, what, are, what were sort of the other themes uh, that sort of kept coming up throughout the book? Um, as you sort of reflected back on your on your life, yeah, it was like that sense of like it was like a, a, a duality, like that two worlds, like that kept coming back up all the time. Like even in college, like you know, I got to college and I'm from Springfield, Illinois. It's a hundred thousand people, mostly low to middle class, and I get to college and I'm seeing like BMW five series and three series, and I'm like, I have never seen this before in my life, and like every kid has it, and. Like, money isn't an issue. And it took me a while to realize that, like, all oh, these are rich kids that didn't get into SC or UCLA. And I was like, yo, this is a different world. Like, they're just, like, comfortable. Like, there's no urgency. Yeah. And for me, it's like, yo, I can't go back home. Well, the way I grew up, we had a lot of good athletes, and we had guys that could have made it to the league. And it's common. Like, Springfield, Illinois is known for the place where people get stuck. So we had like three or four guys that could have went pro and they got to college and didn't make it through the first year. Like I was just afraid to go back home. But then I was like kind of like stuck trying to figure out like how do you fit in here? Like the other side is like being conscious of being a student athlete, but at the same time being exploited. And I talk about the NCAA and people look at it as like I'm talking about just black athletes. What you did for Duke University, not any Duke University, but college basketball, you were compensated. None whatsoever. Like, you got nothing from that. Yeah. Like, you had an incredible career, like, Hall of Fame career. Like, people were tuning in to watch J.J. Reddick. And you got, like, 800 bucks a month, 900 bucks a month, whatever it was. 950 Yeah. 950 a month. Like, that was to pay rent. Right. That was to pay, like, for a two-bedroom with another dude. And I exactly. maybe had 200 bucks left over every month to exactly. get food. And I realized that in college. Yeah. But I'm still young and still, like, I understand. I mean, I, I realize it, but I don't quite understand it. Like, you're still young. You still have, like, you know, I grew up, like, really fast in college from, like, my freshman year to my sophomore year. And also another thing that, that came up was my confidence. Like, I only played one year at AAU, so I, I wasn't quite sure of how good I was. Like, I knew I could compete with you guys because I played against the game. So I'm like, yo, I just – I did good against J.J. Reddick, but it's like, I don't really know how good I am. When I saw Carmelo, I was like, yo, I ain't going pro. <laughs> like, that was, yeah. I'm like, Jesus Christ. It was a Jordan game. 
Like it was just. Did you play in the Jordan I game? I played in the Jordan game. Okay, but I wasn't in McDonald's. But yeah, I played. You in the Jordan and Darren, game. Uh, Darren Williams were not in the McDonald's right. game. We not, you both yeah. should have been, obviously. Yeah, yeah, looking yeah, back, yeah, yeah. but I mean, you were the two guys that, yeah. that should have been in that game. But I was late on the scene, yeah. so it was kind of like I was. I couldn't make up enough ground that short of time. Yeah. But my confidence. And you I wasn't weren't going sure. to Duke, right? Had you committed to Duke, right. but you y'all, probably would have. Guy, y'all had five guys commit early. I think we had five McDonald's All Americans that year. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And they all committed early though, like the summer before. Mike Thompson, Sean Dockery, me, Shaf. Oh, yeah, right. It was four. And then uh, Lee Melchione. Didn't, Melchione. Wasn't, wasn't Melchione. Yes, 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 yes. So the confidence thing was crazy for me because each level, each level, I realized like, oh, I'm better than I thought, but am I better? Am I good enough for the next level? So in college, my freshman year, I think I talk about in the book, like I was clowning around in practice, like goofing off. Coach O was getting on my ass crazy, and I'm making faces at him laughing, like joking around. And uh, Coach Ross pulls me to the side. He was like, stop fucking around. Like, stop bullshitting. Like, get serious. And I'm like, I'm doing my job, but why does he keep getting on my ass? Like, I don't even know what he's mad about. Like, Coach O's always on freshmen and sophomores. Like, you could do something right. Like, I had a triple-double against UCLA. Never forget it. He came in the locker room after the game. We won by, like, 20. He was like, Andre, you got to play better. The hell? <laughs> I was so lost. Like, And then I was – so my confidence was like, I don't think – I know I can go to the NBA. Like, I had a triple-double. He said, I'm not playing well enough. So it's like I I was really confused. So after that practice, I was goofing off. Coach was like, you know, we got NBA scouts here. Like, who do you think they're here to see? And I was like, duh, Jason Gardner, Luke Walton, Channing Fry. He was like, no, you idiot. They came to see you. I was like, For? and it's like, you don't know. Yeah. And then I talk about how there's a, you know, I, I'm sure I know it's happened before at Duke. I know it has where freshmen weren't allowed to leave early. Like that was the thing until- There was early. some pressure. There was until the thing, Elton, yeah, there was, Elton, some, there was yeah. the thing that you but don't even. Leave. Elton was sophomore, and that even was Maggetti and right. Will Avery. All those guys right. left. Like, like Dang might have been year. the first one. Um, Maggetti was the first. Maggetti one. was the first and one. Then Luol Maggetti, and Maggetti was, was like an outlier. Like that yeah. didn't really count. But yeah. with, yeah. you know, he was whatever happened with him. Yeah. So there was a thing where um, the coach could manipulate the mind. I think that's everywhere. I think that's everywhere. That's. It. The the I college coach and Calipari, I think, is the one exception to that rule. Yes, where he's like yes. very blatant and public about it. Hey, come to my school. Look at the track record I have. It's we're we're doing a one and done thing. And I'm a senior and, pro. Yeah, but on our era, way. in our era, it was no. stay around. So that drew me to insomnia and anxiety. So this whole sleep thing that I was on, like. Four years ago, five years, it was five, six years ago where everybody was talking about my sleep and how I changed my whole thing. That started in college where I wasn't going to sleep because I met an agent outside of the arena in college and he was like, I want to represent you. And I'm like, for what? Like, I, like, like I said before, I'm confused. Like, why, for what? He was like, for a pro. I'm like, I ain't good enough. Coach just told me that. He was like, man, what? And then he was like, man, he telling you that because he don't want you to leave. <laughs> and it's just all those things like. But there's, there's another example of trying to live in two worlds. Right, so like right. trying to live Being in two- faithful to you know the college program while yes. also yes. looking out yes. for yourself yes. And, yes. and moving on to yes. bigger things. But I don't think people realize the stress that that has on a nineteen year old. Like you're really a kid. Yeah. Like I do believe that um, you can't be compensated while you're nineteen years old. Like there shouldn't be a million, two million dollars thrown at you as a nineteen year old kid in college. No, it's not. It's not proper. It's not. But I do think okay, you can be compensated, but you'll get it into trust. Yeah, maybe so down the it, line. You'll get it down the line. Yeah, I agree with that. The other thing too is you don't want 
I think there would be a clash in behavior of college coaches versus 18-year-olds who have that amount of money. Yes. And it's like, yes. Where, where's, where's sort of the conflict resolution there if the, the 18-year-old's getting paid a million dollars? And that's a great point. I don't, think, I don't think anyone's— tell me nothing. I don't think that no is like ever literally, said that. I haven't heard that. That's like perfect example. Like yeah. that, that's a true statement. But that's also, and I hate to, I have not just knocking college coaches here, but like that's also why they are able to manipulate control at times. And I don't say everybody's guilty of this, but they're, you know, they're making, let's say three to 5 million, some, mm-hmm. some of them more, and they can pretty much do and act and say however they want. And very rarely is there any sort of repercussions of that. Before we move on to the next thing, I, you, you've mentioned this twice, uh, just about sort of raising your, your, your kid and, and him growing up in a completely different environment mm-hmm. and you use the word comfortable. And that's something that I think about with my own two kids so much is like, I was never comfortable as a right, kid. Right. They're going to be comfortable. Yes. Their life is so different. And how do you, how do you parent them in a way that number one, you can enjoy your life and all the, all the things that you've worked hard for mm-hmm. that sort of becomes normal. Right. Mm-hmm. But parent them in a way where they're motivated, they feel challenged, and there is some level of of being uncomfortable. It's to me is like right. the biggest challenge as a right. parent. And my my five-year-old is naturally, he's naturally soft. He's naturally a soft kid. Yeah. He's just a gentle, sensitive kid. He doesn't have like, you know, the sort of the, I don't want to use a bad word again, but like the dickheadness that I have. Right. You know, he doesn't right. have that. Right. And so I, I like, I worry about that as a parent. It's tough. I don't think you know. Like you, yeah. You just hope they figure it out. All you can do is give them the tools. Like my son, like when he was younger, I used to like we used to box, and I would like throw jabs at him. My wife and I have a good um, yin and yang about it. Like if I if she believes in something, I'm like the total opposite in everything. So maybe I'm a stickler for him being tough, and I'm on him, and she'll say, "Leave him alone." You know, he's gonna grow up thinking that it's okay for his father to just punch him. I'm like, I'm not I'm not killing him. Like, he's swinging at me full speed. Like, you know, he's soft yeah. too. He was yeah. soft. He's getting out of it, yeah. but he's a little. he was a little soft. But at the same time, she's like, listen, you have zero dollars when you leave the house. Your father's not rich. But I'm like, this dude knows everybody's contract in the league. Like, he read yeah. everything. Yeah. And, and, you know, like, he doesn't, he never knew how much I made for a long time. And then he starts seeing like no. certain guys get like four year contracts for eighty million. He's like, Dad, I think you're better than him. How much <laughs> do you make? He starts asking those questions. Yeah. But I'm the opposite. I'm like, listen, son. That's cra- that's actually that's actually crazy to me. Yeah. I, I I can't imagine being at that point in life where my kids are asking like about money or about what I've made or what I it's that's gotta be weird. Now that's the only downside to having kids early, but like I can work out with my son. Like that's yeah. the good like I can I can hang around with him like you know, I, he, he won't be able to beat me one-on-one, which will help benefit him. But, like, we got a two-year-old. She'll never have to go through that, which is good. Like, she'll never have to see it. But at the same time, I tell my son, like, like my wife says, you don't get none of your father's money. Like, she'll tell him that. But I'll be like, yo, bro, like, <laughs> like, yo, look, man. That is harsh, man. Yeah, right. She <laughs> says that. I open my bank account, and I'm like, look, son, like, this is one of the accounts. You can't see the rest, but this is your money. All right, now, listen, this is what kids do. They get money, and they screw it up really bad. All you have to do is go to school, pay attention, get your degree. You just take care of the money. Live off the interest. Don't touch the principal. Like, we have these conversations. 
and he'll be like, all right, he'll start laughing. He'll be, he's goofy. He'll be like, that's a lot of money. And I'll be like, son, just don't need this, this, you know, let's listen to me. And you know, they're teenagers, so they they don't listen a lot of the times, but I just look them in the eyes. You just gotta be honest with them. Yeah. And then that's all you can do. At what point in your uh, NBA career did you start feeling comfortable to sort of pursue outside interest? Um, like, I have no idea. Like, when did you take up golf? And, and obviously, uh, when did you start working with Rudy? Mm-hmm. And also, you know, you you have been sort of an outspoken black athlete. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I assume that wasn't the case always in your career. There's certain you talked about confidence earlier, and there's confidence on the basketball court, and then confidence sort of in the man you are. Right. When did that change start to happen for you? So as far as me being outspoken black athlete, I had that from the beginning from my mom. Like I said, like leaving the house every day was like stay yeah. black, like every day. Yeah. And it was like this is how you approach the police. Like I've seen my mother. She had two voices. We talk about dualities. My mom had two voices. So or she had two, it was like two people. Like when she had makeup on, she was like the nicest person in the world. When she had makeup off, I was a frightened of her. <laughs> like, oh man, like she wasn't bullshitting. Like, and then um, I seen her like beating my brother, like beat him up. But he was bigger than her and he just, like tried her. And she, she put him, it was crazy thing. But I've seen her like on the phone. She had a white voice talking to my teacher. She had the white voice. I'm like, who are you? Like, <laughs> you're not this person all the time. But I've seen her like call a guy. We used to live in a small apartment above my grandmother, and then she was finally in a position we can get our own place, and she was trying to get her own place. Had the white voice on, and everything's fine. We go to the house. We take a cab because we didn't have a car to the play, to the house. Ring the doorbell. The guy opens the door, and he was like, "Who are you?" So he was like, "I just." She was like, "I just spoke to you." She was like, "I spoke to you. I didn't speak to you." He's like, "I just spoke to you about the house," and he was like, "Oh, uh, it's, it's not available." I witnessed that. Wow. Right. Wow. So like that was that was me realizing my blackness at a really young age, like all the time, even in school. Like uh, I think I talk about it in the I talk about it in the book as far as uh, you know you track classes, you know you got high track, you got average, and then you got below average tracking system when you go in your classroom. I, I was always in class with white kids. First day of seventh grade, walking to class, I got the lady's name. I remember her like it was yesterday though. Walk into class. She was like, what are you doing? Like, where are you going? I'm like, going in, going in class. She was like, are you sure you're in this class? I'm like, yeah, I know where I'm going. Like, I can read. Like, <laughs> I know the room. She was like, let me see your schedule. And it's like when you, they say first class, and it was like first class. And when I'm 19 years old and I'm black, and they like, first class. And I'm like, here. Yeah. They say first class. You didn't even look at my ticket yet. I'm in first class. It happened. And when I was in seventh grade, she was like, let me see your schedule. I'm like... I realized right away, like, you don't think I belong in here. I ended up being her favorite student. She was like, you're the best writer in the class. And I was like, but I remember the first day you didn't think I belonged. So my blackness I have seen for a long time. In terms of the other things, you know how it is in the league. You got to figure it out, like, kind of like who you are, especially with finances. Sure. Like, I did a really good job early on of saving my money. Like, I did really good. I had some really good vets. But then as you get closer closer to your second contract, you kind of realize, like, okay, I, I have a my footing in the league. I'm going to go to my second contract. I turned down a big extension, meaning I knew I was going to get a bigger one. And then you start to be like, I'm about to ball out because that's what a lot of guys are doing, not realizing the effects of it. So I had a little bit of that, and I look back like, damn, that was dumb. Yeah. Like, so you took cars, jewelry. So I had three cars. Yeah. Like I never got outside of that. Yeah. And I don't, that only lasted like a couple months. I was like, yo, yeah. this is really dumb. 
And then you had a little bit of jewelry. I had a huge wardrobe. But once you figure that out, I'm like, uh, okay. And I made a few mistakes in my lifestyle that I had to hit the switch. And it happened for me quick. Like, it didn't last long. I went into depression for like a year. When I first grew my hair out, that was all depression. But it was good. It was good. I went through it, though. Because then I ran out of time. What year was this that you grew your hair out? I'm trying to remember. First year I grew my hair out was uh, uh, Eddie Jordan was our coach. So this was like... Oh nine, oh eight, oh nine, somewhere around there. Okay. I grew. People were like, "You grew your hair out, right?" And I was like, "I, was I cleaned it up when the season started, but that whole summer I was depressed. Like it was bad." But it helped me with some lifestyle changes, and that's when I hit that, you know, that one eighty to kind of get the affairs in order. Like I never knew about net worth. Like I knew how much money my contract was, so I'm like, I know how much money I got coming in. Yeah. Like I can spend and do these things. And then one lady helped me out. She was like, "This is your net worth." You actually, your net worth is like negative four hundred thousand. I'm like, how? I got a couple. I got a million or two saved up in the bank. And she broke it down for me. Man, I was so damn scared. I saved so much money the next three or four years. Like my, like she was like, let's get to this many million, and let's see how fast it takes. Man, it took me like a year or two. Like <laughs> I got there quick. I was so scared. Like I lived in this little bitty apartment. I changed things up, and then that that kind of set the foundation of me to get into tech, uh, studying things off the court. Like, I only watch four channels. Bloomberg, <laughs> Golf Channel, Food Network, and, you know, you have to you have to watch basketball sometimes. Getting to uh, Golden State in the summer of 2013 mm-hmm. required them to basically dump some salary on the Utah Jazz. Yep. I, can't, I think it was Beadrins and Richard Jefferson, right? Yep. Looking back, that trade probably altered the NBA landscape, and no one ever talks about it. No one ever talks about it. No one ever talks about it. Right. And one of the reasons is obviously, you know, Steph has got, you know, a couple MVPs, and Clay's made an all-NBA team. Mm -hmm. Um, But your role in this dynasty and this five-year run – uh, is as important as anyone else's. And and one of the reasons I just think is because of sort of the, your your team is has just been the perfect mix of guys. Right. And the skill sets all complement each other. And that's so rare. I don't even know if some of it is like luck mm-hmm. in terms of the Warriors part or planning. I just don't think enough teams do it where they're looking at how these sort of yeah. Pieces fit. And I just wonder, like, are we ever going to see – and I, I'm not saying the run is over, but are we ever going to see a, another run like this? Because it, it's, it's, been, it's been unbelievable. Well, I, like you said, people don't – it was a lot of luck behind it. And, and you know, in terms of Steph's ankles yeah. being kind of weak for a, a year oh, or two. Oh, yeah, I wrote, all, I wrote all this yeah. stuff down. Like yeah. Steph's contract, right? Yeah. So That's, he gets signs an yeah. under-market value contract. Summer of 16, we get the jump. We don't right. do the – you know the 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 what was the word that the PA used in terms of uh, making sure there wasn't the one year jump in the salary, um, the, um, the spike. Oh oh, oh yeah. the easing the, easing yeah yeah, yeah, we yeah. Didn't do the it easing. wasn't easing but they eased yeah, everything yeah. in. Yes, we, we didn't do the easing. We yes. did the one year jump. Yes, Katie happened to be a free agent. Yes, you guys yes. beat them. Yes yes yes. Like for how Clay how they got Clay drafted, I'd never want to talk about it because I yeah. don't. Everyone takes some um, your words and tries to twist them, but how they drafted Clay. And how he fell to the Warriors was crazy. It was all because his college coach, I guess he liked a woman or something, and that woman was connected to the police officer, which led the police officer harassing the players. And then Clay sitting in his car, 
in his driveway. The car's not on. He's chilling. And he gets a citation for something. And now he has a stigma of being a weed pothead, mm-hmm. which he wasn't doing anything. Right. And now he has a, this perception of him in his draft, and he falls to the Warriors. Right? Think about, like, events yeah. that happen like that. Like, the stars are just online. And some people are trying to take all the credit for what's happening. And There's so much luck involved. There's so much luck involved. Or, like, man. the decision to trade Monte for, right. for Andrew. And yeah, right, right, right. And Bogut was very instrumental uh, early on. Oh, yeah. Run. And, like, people don't realize how good he was. Like, he was number one pick. We had a double team Bogut when he was in Milwaukee. Like, he was – Yeah. So, all those things. Mark Jackson – Deserves a lot more credit because I always tell people like you had it like coaches who believe in you. Yeah, you're a totally different player. Sure, like I've had it because I had like I have have had nine coaches. I had five coaches in Philly in eight years. I had to prove to each and every one of them. It was like you know one coach was like yo all you do is just go to the hole and dunk. I'm like if I could do that I would do that like. <laughs> and why wouldn't you want to polish your game up? Right. But I had to prove to every coach that listen man I can make this pass or I can I can. I'm not a bad shooter. Like yeah. historically, you know, I shoot better threes than Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen, mm. right? Like stuff like that. You got to yeah. prove these. But Mark Jackson, coaching Steph Curry and Clay, and telling them they were going to be the best duo in NBA history on the perimeter. People thought he was a cra- like he was on drugs. Yeah. And now they're saying, "Oh, this is the best shooting history duo in history." Like yeah. that's crazy. So for him to be their coach, I think was really good for them later on or, or throughout their career. And then obviously Steve just kind of polished things up. Have you had time to reflect back on this five-year run while you're in, while you're in it? Like, do you reflect back on it at all? Nope. Or do you still feel like you're in it? You can't, you can't reflect. I tell people all the time, it's like, and it sounds like, it sounds bad, but I don't really care. Like, listen, man, you win a championship, just try to enjoy it. Just because it's, it's not all as hyped up to be. You win one championship, I think that's like, it's, that's the perfect number. One or two is perfect. Once you win three championships, it's like it's, you you understand the business, all the nonsense that goes with it, and you're just like jaded. You're like, whatever, man. Like, I haven't seen any of my rings. Two are over here, and one I don't know where. I don't have a clue where it's at. I have a finals MVP. I have no idea where the trophy's at. There's no jerseys on my house. My wife finally put the jersey up upstairs somewhere. She was like, why is this in the corner? I'm like, yo, like... Does the expectation does playing till June fifteenth every year does that become a burden? You just you or get just ex- going through the process all throughout the season to get to that point is the burden. I think you just get exhausted with the things around the game. Yeah, because we all love the game of basketball, but the more you love it, <laughs> the more the nonsense you re- you, yeah. you you see the nonsense more. Yeah. Like you pinpoint like like yo, like you do interviews every day. Like yo, why are you here, man? Like you just show up like once a year and then you write a huge story and you get famous off us. Like you didn't put in no real time. Like there's no real. It's, it's the journal. Real journalism is going away. Like no one writes a real story. And then once someone finds something, everyone jumps on that specific thing. It's like yo, I'm answering this question over and over uh-huh. and over and again. No one wants to be creative, or everyone's just looking for hits. I think dealing with the media obviously is a big part of our job. I they, they've got to do something with like game days. Pre-game, them coming in the locker room and standing around for 30 minutes, like, it drives me berserk. You know, you would love Andrew Bogut. It drives me berserk. And the other thing is, too, like, you can't – like, I change at, like, the 62-minute mark, uh, and it's right in the middle of when they're in there. Yep. And there's, like, cameras on me while I'm trying to – like, this year I just, like, fuck it. I'm going to the bathroom right, to yeah, put my tights on. Right. And, and people look at you, and I'm like, what is going on here? It's just, like – and – 
they've already seen you at shoot around or in the morning, especially like, you know, a lot of yes. teams don't do shoot around at home, but they do it on the road. So yeah. they see you in the morning. Then they see you before the game. Nothing's changed in those six hours. Right. I promise you. Yes. <laughs> I ate lunch and took a nap. <laughs> That's it. That is it. And then you got to talk to them again post game. Right. Uh, and then they do the one-offs. The one-offs are the worst part because sometimes you get done with a scrum and you've got like two or three one-offs. Yep. One-offs are sort of you spend 10 minutes speaking to a group of, let's say, 12 to 15 reporters. Yep. And then as you walk away to either leave the locker room or leave the practice facility, uh, one of the reporters will grab you and they'll say, hey, can I ask you a few questions? I'm writing an article about Steve Kerr yes. or Steph yes. or whatever. Yes. I just, for whatever reason, I'm not, I don't, I'm not uh, begrudging sort of the job they do. I'm begrudging how the point we've got now with access, it's, right. it's almost too much. It's too much. I told I told the people in Philly this year, I was like, I only want to do what is mandatory. Yes. I'm only doing what is mandatory. Yes. And that's nothing against anyone else. It's become too much. It's become too much. Andrew Bogut, every game, pregame when they're in there, we'll ask them, do any of you have any questions for anyone? <laughs> or are you just going to stay in here today? And they all look at him like, is he serious? It's like, no, are, are any of you going to ask a question? So we have this thing where as soon as that hits where they're able to walk in, there's a mad dash to the training room, and you'll see eight players where only, like, six people can fit, and we're just in there, and we'll close the doors, and then they'll be like, all right, time's up, and then we'll go back into the locker room. I don't don't get it. Yeah. It's shenanigans at this point. They need to to do away with that part of it. My only issue is that let's get back to – let's get creative with our stories – and like, let's write. I, about I do think there, there's a lot of people out there. No, there are, that are a lot doing really good work. There are, there are some, but uh, the, the issue. I think the bigger issue, and what you're speaking of, I think, is just the aggregate culture of you saying something, right? Uh, I'm not going to name a website, but let's say Bleacher Report. Let's say Bleacher Report. They do it. <laughs> I was going to say Bleacher Report yesterday. <laughs> I was going to say Bleacher Report. All right, so Bleacher Report runs it, and then. Like 15 Instagram accounts, let's say 20 uh, team fan blogs, and 60 IG accounts end up running that. And they all sort of take the words and then make them their own little headline. And yes. all of a sudden, it just grows into something that yes. it never really was. It never was. That to me is a problem. I don't necessarily think the people in the locker room are like intentionally trying to right. like I, sabotage us or anything like that. But I think just think the way that the internet and social media works. I think has created unnecessary strife at times. Don't write a headline if you weren't present for the interview. <laughs> and Bleacher Report has done that to us all year. Where Draymond or Katie, Katie did an interview and he talked about, you know, it can be tough at times to play with LeBron because there's so much people covering him so much. And then people want to make a story about everything, and you might get thrown in a story. You had nothing to do with it. The guy that wrote the story was like, he said it so eloquently. He expressed himself so well. It was so thoughtful. He was actually giving LeBron praise. And all he said was, you know, the only issue is it could be tough being in that environment. You got to grow up really fast, and you got to be really focused because all there are a lot of eyes on you, blah, blah, blah. Like, he was basically giving LeBron praise. Bleach Report ran a story that said, Katie said, LeBron's environment is toxic, and, and no one should want to play there. And now we're going to get asked those questions about what KD said. So we don't even know what happened. Right. And we're like, ah. A non-story becomes a two or three-week story or sometimes longer. Sometimes it, some of those stories last the whole season. Yes. But it's 
more attention on NBA, more marketing, yeah. more ads, there's more money. So we built this machine <laughs> yeah. and people say accept it because it brings you more money. Right. What people don't realize is, you know, Kanye West said it. Having money is not everything. Not having it is. Like it's a that's Yeah, it. I mean I so I, I I talk about this all the time on my podcast, but I, I deleted all my social media accounts mm -hmm. and it was a personal decision. And I haven't been on social media since last August. Mm -hmm. However, I want every NBA player to have a social media account. Right. Because it's good for the league. Yes. You know, it just yes. wasn't good for me. Right. So uh, I want to respect your time. I do have to ask one more question. So around the uh, NBA finals, there was some some talk of you being an NBA Hall of Famer. Mm -hmm. And I know uh, when the, the Patriots won this year, Everybody was saying Julian Edelman, you know, should be a Hall of Famer mm -hmm. as well. And and I think the narrative surrounding what is and what isn't a Hall of Famer is, is sort of changing in terms of how we value postseason success mm -hmm. and, and, and our rings culture. Do you think you should be in the Hall of Fame? I don't think so personally. Okay. And I'm, like, cool with it. Like, I don't really care. Like, like I said, like, I don't know where any of my trophies is or are. <laughs> like, my mom has a lot of stuff. And I go back home, like, yo, I don't even remember, like, it's just like I really enjoy playing basketball to win, like whatever it takes. Like you know, like I'm out there, and y'all leave me open. Like I know I'm open, I know I can shoot it. Like I know that, but I also know, like we got this machine, it's gonna work whether y'all leave me open or not. And like I'm just comfortable. Like I've just embraced that. Like I don't care as long as we win. But like all the accolades and stuff is like. I don't really care anyway. They're going to forget you whether you're in or not. Right. <laughs> so, like, I just is something I just – there's people that are better than me that aren't in. Okay. And there's people that That's, I'm better than that are in. Okay. I'm like a basketball historian, I'm sure, yeah, sure. as you are. Sure, so, sure enough. I wouldn't I, disagree with that statement. I, I do. I do wonder, like, if – and and I you can't – because I can't ask this question because it's a pure hypothetical. But, like, I do wonder, like, if you're – your need for validation for individual stuff would be different had you not won three championships with the Warriors. Does that make sense? Yes. Like, because I think, and I haven't won an NBA championship, mm -hmm. so I don't know, but like, I do think that would be the ultimate validation for me to be a part of, an integral part of a, of a championship team, more so than anything else. Well, I've seen both sides of being the man. Yeah, because you were an all-star in Philly. And yeah, losing yeah. Yeah. versus playing a role and winning, there's pros and cons to both. Sure. Like, you know, your confidence is everything, like I said before. And when you're the man, my confidence is on high. Like, there's nothing, I feel like there's nothing I can't do on the court. Like, yo, man, I'm not going to miss. Like, and I'm, I'm going to get to where I need to go. I'm going to get to my spots. I don't, there's nobody that can stop me. Like, you feel like that when you're the man. And that's like an incredible feeling. When you're playing a role, sometimes your confidence can waver. It's like, yo, man, I'm only getting three shots tonight. If I miss my first shot... Man, don't pass me the ball, man. Like, give me a layup. Yeah. But at the same time, you you late in the season and it's crunch time and you get the flow and the juice is going. Now you're feeling confident and you're winning and you're a big part of the winning. That's a different feeling than getting 25 and losing in the first round. Sure. All right. Andre, appreciate it. Thank you. Um, I probably don't need to say this because I'm sure it's awesome, but good luck with the book and, and all the promotion stuff uh, surrounding it. And I'm looking forward to uh, seeing it on a bestseller list. Yes. And I'm a huge fan of J.J. Riddick. So. Thank you, bud. <laughs> appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the JJ Reddick Podcast. I hope everyone has an awesome July 4th and enjoys NBA free agency. I'll be back very soon with another episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.